0: is he he a risk for uh being live yeah he's out of his mind not like jeff oh my god
1: not like jeff who keeps it tight all right well (laughs) welcome to this episode of dad bod history just jake and eric tonight hope you guys are doing well let's get into it we got some old news so the Zapotec underworld this article comes from the Smithsonian Magazine, which is only slightly more reputable than Yahoo News. But the article says uh, the Zapotec underworld entrance in Mexico. According to local legend, the ancient Zapotecs built an intricate network of tunnels around a deep earthen cavity in southern Mexico, believing it to be an entrance to the underworld. Later, the story goes, Spanish missionaries sealed off the entrance, off the entrance which supposedly lay beneath the Church of San Pablo. A Catholic church built in the 15th century. I can't be right. Fifteen? It's got to be the 16th century. Yeah. So Spanish actually got to Mexico until the 1500s, which would be the 16th century. Anyway. Yes. The team found the tunnels beneath the ruins of Mitla, an ancient city in present-day Oaxaca, Oahu- Oaxaca, Oaxaca, Oaxaca. There's no Oaxaca.
0: It's Oaxaca.
1: It we tried it 10 times. We said it wrong every single time, differently. Mitla served as a religious center for the Zapotecs, a group which emerged from Mexico's Oaxaca Valley around the 6th century BCE. Writing in 1674, the Dominican chronicle, chronicler named Francisco Bergo, Bergoa described an extensive cavity in the earth in Mitla, which a group of Spanish missionaries decided to explore. When they descended into the maze, such was the corruption, bad smell, the dampness of the floor and a cold wind, which extinguished the lights that at the little distance they had already penetrated. They resolved to come out and order the infernal gate to be thoroughly closed with masonry. Oh, wow. Yeah. Large. So and apparently this underground cavern is a large void located right beneath the main altar of this church right uh and they also found two more passages located between five and 18 meters uh, below the ground as well as another geophysical anomaly this is guy this is like uh maybe it's a bad analogy but this is like laters of raiders of the lost ark or um temple of doom type stuff like the secret underground
0: yeah passage uh, to the world. so but he talked about how they mapped out all these passages right yeah, they mm-hmm. used like some LIDAR or, or we, know, sound penetrating. Probably four or five years ago, we went up to Northern California for a weekend. And on one of those days, we went to this uh, silver mine. It was a national park or a state park.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was a
0: silver mine. And you walk through the museum and they had this display that showed. um, It, it showed where the entrance was. And then this like spider web of all of the different mine shafts and tunnels Mm -hmm. and it showed the depth of all of them, absolutely horrifying.
1: It's really wild.
0: Like You got to take an elevator like (laughs) 45 minutes down before you can start working. So in Park City
1: in Utah, the state I live in now, Park City was an old, I believe it was a silver mine as well. And so when we we visited about a year or so ago and same thing, like they show this map of the mines and how deep it is. And like the shaft just goes down forever and they pack these miners in like sardines and they talk about when like mm-hmm. the elevator cable snapped and everybody just plummeted to their death or somebody fell out or somebody didn't lean in and the elevator went up and <laughs> bisected that person like, it's
0: oh yeah as you said or i guess less gruesome that they couldn't clock in until they had reached yeah the the bottom and
1: injury or no you better get on get in on time but um just wild and i just read another article and i've seen this one before i can't remember the name of the city um but in anatolia which is like modern day turkey there's an underground city there like like you look at a cross section of it and looks like a giant like ant farm you know and they got you know like all these rooms and tunnels so people when like armies were invading the people of this town would just go underground so above ground it looked like the town was abandoned and so the raiders theoretically would just kind of move past while the people underground lived waiting for the danger to pass and it's just like I mean I guess you do what you gotta do Iron Forge. Yeah,
0: exactly. I'm thinking of the name Iron Forge.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it was just yeah, not quite as nice as Iron Forge. But it's um, just wild what humans that have, have purposely decided to live underground like that um, blows my mind. Did you lead us in? I don't remember. I did. It was quick. I just said, welcome to okay. death on history. Okay. Jake and Eric,
0: let's get into it. <laughs> And here we are. We're into it. So, yeah, here we so before we get into the other articles, mm-hmm. have you – you've been on TikTok lately? I've dabbled. <clears throat> you've dabbled. Have you Have you – <laughs> I'm afraid to do it because it might – have you, you, you seen the the whole like AI NPC? Oh, my People gosh. who are just like this. Yeah, I had no
1: idea what that was. It's the it's like weirdest thing. People, usually women from what I've seen – Behave as if they're like an NPC Uh, uh, in an MMROPG, right? Like, I've seen a few guys. I'm sure there are, but the ones I've seen is just like, uh, like this. What she's like, thank you for the ice cream, thank you for the right, like, because you can give them gifts, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. And some of these people are like, they're really good at not behaving like normal people. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, (laughs) but
0: it's, it is Wild. what they're doing, <laughs> I mean, um, they're, but they're like raking it in too. Some of these, like yeah. I mean, I, I've been slightly tempted. I, I'm not sure if my I, dignity can withstand it. I feel it. like you would get annoyed, and you'd break character relatively quickly. Thank you for the. You know what? No, I'm yeah. done with this. I'm not cream. thanking you for that rose. Yeah. Take it back. That rose needs not licking. To that ice cream. Yeah. I've seen a few, and they're just wild. Wow. Yeah, yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, I saw Oppenheimer. Okay.
1: You said it was. You but said it was so Nolan's he, magnum opus.
0: Yeah, I. I just don't see. I don't see another film topping that this year.
1: So you think it's like Christopher Nolan's Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> Like Saving Private Ryan's... and this is hard to pick with Steven Spielberg
0: because like yeah. has had so many great movies. Uh, but I would say that was okay. Schindler's List is up there. Gosh, yeah. it's it's in the vein of Schindler's List in that it was so well done. Mm-hmm. But it's not something I I I want to like go back and watch over and over and I've over. I've had
1: movies like that. Although, Schindler's List being one. Of the, although I am I'm glad I saw it, very I'm never watching it again. <sighs>
0: Oh, I'm, I'm watching Oppenheimer again, and I really want to go see it in the theater again, but it's last week I finished watching Succession Mm -hmm. and I was kind of like, I don't know what to watch after that.
1: (laughs) Uh, I've completely uh, forgotten about Jojo's. um, It's an anime. I can't, what is it? Jojo's what? Anyway, I saw the suggestions that people had for you and they were pretty funny. The bear I heard is really good. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but then I saw this and it completely like erased you know, uh, cleansed the palette. It just overshadowed, yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah. Really burned the palette there. Uh it was good and and here's the thing I'm noticing about Nolan films is that they're not the the late 90s early 2000s we were really diving deep into gritty realism. Yeah, that's not what I'm seeing here. This is more like what impressionism was in the world of art to the realism. This is to the gritty realism of films, because, yes, there is a gritty realism to this, but it's it's so much from the perspective of Robert Oppenheimer that it's more like Nolan's trying to give you the impression of what. Oppenheimer was feeling so there's scenes that there's not realism mm-hmm. in the scene but you're like I certainly understand the look on his face and kind of all the noise around him yeah uh, it's more like an impressionist painting of a film okay and I I love all it right. I'll check it
1: out I, I'm gonna try to
0: see it this week that's my goal I want to I want to take my wife to see it um, but it's three hours long, and we got to do something with the kids. So kids, it's just tough. Yeah. Um. All right, let's get into the next article yeah.
1: here. Extreme <clears throat> rowing. So this is from ArchaeoNews.net. Uh, Czech experimental archaeologists successfully completed their one-month voyage in the Aegean Sea using a replica of a prehistoric vessel. So Radomir Tichi. An archaeology professor at the University of Frada Kralove, who is also their director of the Visteri Archaeopark, and his team of experimental archaeologists use a replica vessel, successfully completed its voyage across the Aegean Sea. So the Aegean Sea is the sea between the Peloponnese, the peninsula of Greece, um, basically mm-hmm. to Turkey, Asia Minor. That would yeah. be the Aegean. Um and so the expedition uh, organizer, Radimir said that the team aimed to shed light on the nature of agricultural colonization in the Mediterranean 9,000 years ago. The team of 20 paddlers and a helmsman braved the open waters to complete a 500-kilometer route divided into 17 sections. Starting from the Greek island of Samos, located off the coast of Turkey, they navigated through various islands before reaching the Peloponnese Peninsula in Greece. The boat, an accurate replica of an 8000-year-old Neolithic boat discovered in Lake Bracciano near Rome in 1994, weighs nearly 3 tons, is 11 and a half meters in length and is up to 1.2 meters in width. And the vessel made last year from a single trunk of an uprooted oak tree that grew for 300 years in a local forest in East Bohemia. Over 100 hours of paddling, the team completed the 500 mile kilometer, sorry, route of an average speed of five kilometers per hour which blows my mind that they did this one and two that even back then eight nine thousand years ago people were looking for the fastest way possible to traverse because if you weren't going to cross the Aegean Sea you were walking all the way from like you know, the Mesopotamia up through to Turkey. Um, yeah. Across the Bosphorus. And that's a mountainous walk. Yeah, across the Bosphorus, True. which is a big, I mean, that connects the Black Sea and the Aegean. Um, and then from there to the Peloponnese, like that. Um, you know, the reason the Panama Canal, even in the 1900s, is so important is because it shaved months off of a trip around the tip of south america in sailing and it was even then before the panama canal was connected it was still faster to sail from new york to california all the way around the tip of south america and back up than it was to take a wagon from new york to california that's how fast comparatively travel by ship was than by walking or horse
0: even if, yeah. even if that ship is basically just a big canoe, <laughs> like it's a master. Yeah. So, but you said this was a Czech
1: group? It was a Czech university that decided to replicate this.
0: So the University of Hradi Kral- Kralove. Um, and their, their experience with oceans and seas is what? Vast. Being a landlocked well, a nation. got some nice rivers.
1: Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> they've probably got some funding, but it is interesting. We've got well, a river. They had the tree. That's why they had the tree that they carved this oh, boat out of. Yeah. So that's how it worked. They're like, hey, Greece, we've got this. Then dream. they had to
0: carry the tree we, further we, than they were going to sail can we it. We sail this down.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it's wild. Like they carved it out of a single trunk, right? So it's just a single piece of wood they carved into this. Basically, what was it eleven and a half meter long canoe, a team of twenty rowers, yeah, no sail, just rowing
0: and just riding so from island to island you know it's it's pretty wild some of the different seafaring and seafaring peoples of the ancient world and or none not so ancient world people who do seafaring without. All of the technology. Yeah. Like you right. said, the Polynesians, yeah, the Polynesians
1: and the Wayfinders,
0: way right? Which is insane. Yeah, because it's not like go for 500 kilometers and run into Asia. It's go for 500 kilometers. And if you're off by a degree, you've missed the only land. Yeah, that's the difference is the Aegean yeah.
1: Sea is a very small sea comparatively. And it's just covered in islands so you can go pretty easily from island to island to island to island and never lose sight of the island that you left easily right so the the risk is not i'm not saying it's no risk especially nine thousand years ago um when it's just a bunch of you know stone age people (laughs) But like the risk is considerably less in the aegean sea than it would be for like the the polynesians um in the pacific ocean (laughs) like it's the, the scale is so much smaller but yet the polynesians were so good at it and you've talked about this before um using the stars and wayfinding to not just be able to figure it out but precisely map all the islands of the ocean based on the locations of the stars like it's just like we we didn't we just got relatively speaking, we just got better than what the Polynesians were doing for hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of years.
0: That's how accurate. That <clears throat> I'm still thinking about this particular voyage. A mm-hmm. hundred hours of paddling, five kilometers per hour, but I think they were talking about in some places the heat was pretty high. Mm-hmm. Like these were not just professors from the archaeology department.
1: Yeah, it wasn't I mean, a little
0: bit gray hairs. <laughs> it was- but they I mean nobody died on this trip that we know yeah, of, right?
1: No, nobody died. Everybody everybody made it. There's just a bunch of
0: interns and teaching assistants. Yeah, unpaid interns, yeah. graduate students, no business being there, but put to work. But they growing. gotta get those credits. Like, they gotta they gotta get those credits. So it is a- you know, if you're interning, it's not slave labor. Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny my
0: brother-in-law who's getting his doctorate. We want this to be accurate so you guys aren't getting paid for this. It's
1: funny my brother-in-law who's working on his doctorate um in archaeology. And he told me when he he um some of his postgrad workers at a uh, Michigan Tech, it was way up there in the UP in Michigan. Anyway, one of the things that they did for his program was they created a World War I trench so that hmm. they could learn about, you know, the the conditions of trench warfare. Um, right. And so they actually had to dig a trench like in obviously it wasn't to the full scale. But like it's part of the job. We got to dig this trench out to learn about World War I. And then part of what his degree is, is he maps things digitally so he can create digital exhibits for like museums and stuff and so that's what he did with it after it was built is he created a digital map of it so that it could be given to like school groups or museums or whatever but anyway just kind of weird some of the some of the stuff that these history and archaeology departments will do as part of their research
0: you know but yeah i gosh i want to dig a trench when i teach world war one that'd be fun Well, not me. Like have the students do oh, Yeah, student. you're
1: you're a commander. You're you're like the field yeah, marshal. You make commander. them do it. All right. So next one I got. Next article: teenage jewelry. This is from Newsweek. So a little more pop culture, but I think it's still pretty interesting. Um, a skeleton of a disabled teen puzzles archaeologists because they had a bracelet. So this discovery is made at Toca do Olo de Agua da. Andarijas Excavation. Nailed it. Perfect. My Great accent, job. Yeah. All the Spanish speakers and Portuguese are really proud of me right now. And Sarah de <laughs> Confusois National Park in East Brazil. The skeleton. Portuguese then. Yeah. Yeah. We're fine. The skeleton belonged to an indigenous teenager who lived many, many years ago. In short, they know her to be at least older than 300 years ago, but they're not 100% sure how much older. Um she suffered from a severe case of spina bifida a birth condition that causes a malformation of the spine and the tissues around the spinal cord it is quite likely she was unable to walk thus meaning she would have had to be taken care of by the remaining people of her group this shows us that the notions we hold today surrounding the care for disabled people are not only exclusive to our time nor to western societies indigenous peoples in brazil were displaying that same behavior before the arrival of colonialism said this um, tome who's the guy leading this excavation um this teenager also appeared to be buried with a bracelet around her right arm um closely possibly around a thousand beads is what the bracelet was made of this reminded me of and here's why i want to talk about this because this reminded me of I don't know if it was an article or something I saw on TikTok or Twitter, but somebody said, a researcher said, and I know you've mentioned this as well, when we talk about what is the sign of civilization in humans and in groups of humans? Is it books? Is it buildings? Is it written language? Is it art? Um, and somebody's found this cave, I think it was of Neanderthals, and mm-hmm. they showed this woman <clears throat> who was buried, and um one of her bones, like her leg or her arm, was broken at one point, but it had shown signs of healing. Which means that this woman was broken, her body her leg was broken. She was laid up, unable to do the things that you would need her to do to survive in this society 10, 20,000 years ago. But the people of that group took care of her enough that her leg healed and she lived for a time after that. So the idea that the sign of civilization is not the things that they build or the books or art, but that they're taking care of one another. And this article reminded me of that because this girl probably yeah. from birth was unable
0: to walk. And yeah, that's a pretty severe condition yeah. too. Like, yeah. And through her I, whole life, you know, although it was very short, she
1: died as a teenager. She was being taken care of by the people in her community until she died. And I think that's really cool. I, I mean, I, I think that when we talk about civilization, if that's not one of the hallmarks, it should be of what a civilized group of people is.
0: I found this one comment in this article a little bit odd that care for disabled as being something that I don't know anyone that claims that care for the disabled is exclusive to Western societies. Or didn't exist before colonialism. I don't know anyone yeah, I, I that I found that, that odd too.
1: But maybe I found that odd because I have read these other things about ancient civilizations, you know, and the Egyptians. And they were, one of the things they were known for yeah, was their they, ability to mend broken bones. Like, that was a thing they did really, really well. So, I, I guess I did find that odd because I'm like, no, there's plenty of evidence that cultures took care of injured or infirm people.
0: And in many cases, I, they were commanded I mean, to. Yeah, I think there's there, there's a lot of societies though, in every part of the world where they don't right, mm-hmm. like they can't, they were they were in a position where they couldn't afford to care for people, or they thought they weren't. Um, the Spartans being one of them, right? Yeah, the Greeks, not, just, like, not yeah, just the Spartans, but the Greeks in general.
1: If a baby yeah, was just, born and it seemed to be have a birth defect, it was it was exposed, it was left out on the rocks. Um, yeah. To the elements, you know, like that absolutely was a thing, um, you know, and, and you know, and people talk about social Darwinism, especially in like the Gilded Age, where it was a dog eat dog world and only the strong survive. So I understand that mentality running through societies all across the world, but I've also seen ample evidence that people have always taken care of. Those less fortunate in certain
0: societies across the world and across time, um yeah, and th- they they'll make those attempts, right, mend a bone, set a bone, yeah, medicines right. um yeah, dressings, all sorts of stuff like it it's
1: it's really cool to see, so I just thought it just reminded me of that, which is I thought it was worth talking about,
0: and we don't even have there's not really the physical evidence of people who got sick and were cared for until they died, mm-hmm. right? Somebody gets a fever and can't move on. Well, the yeah, group it's stopped. harder to find the that in, in just bones. You don't see that evidence in the bones. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. Legio X. Leg- yeah, Legio X tensis,
1: the 10th Legion of the Strait, was a legion of the Imperial Roman army formed around 41 or 40 BC, so right after Julius Caesar was killed. Uh, The legion was centrally involved in the great Jewish revolt of 66 through 73 A.D. Uh, This would be the first of the three major rebellions by the Jews against the Roman Empire. Uh, This is also referenced in the New Testament where Jesus says this will be destroyed. This temple will be destroyed. Uh, The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., um, Herod's temple. And uh, most of Roman rule was restored in Judea uh, by 70 A.D., except for several fortresses and Jerusalem. And the city was placed under the siege by the uh, Legion X or the Tenth Legion Fretensis, in conjunction with the Fifth Legion of Macedonica, the Twelfth Legion of Fulminata, and the Fifteenth of Apollinaris. After several battles, Jerusalem and the Second Temple was destroyed. With contemporary historian Titus Flavius Josephus stating, "Jerusalem was so thoroughly razed to the ground by those that demolished it to its foundations that nothing." was left that could ever persuade visitors that it had once been a place of habitation. What makes this interesting here about this particular legion is excavations at the Roman fort of Apsaros and Ad- Adjara in Georgia um, have uncovered evidence that the ex Fratensis through the discovery of hundreds of bronze coins, the coins likely originate from the treasury of Judea and were transported by the 10th fritensis on their way the campaign against the parthians during the reign of emperor trajan at the beginning of the 2nd century ad um and georgia modern day georgia is on basically on the eastern side of the black sea
0: so mm-hmm. much farther east than judea which is on and what was the term so these coins they were they were not they had like they were worn down and they were basically stamped. The 10th Legion had restamped them, yeah, to be it's sometimes restamped to be revalued, right? Yeah. Have your it'd be like me going to my $10 bill and restamping to money,
1: yeah. So, it's countermarking. counter-marking. So, in which scenario arises when the currency undergoes a reform rendering exist coins obsolete to address this, the coins already in circulation can be marked with an updated value based on the new currency system this practice makes to serve to prolong the lifespan of existing coins presenting a potentially more cost-effective solution compared to recalling melting so basically instead of having to melt all these coins down and restamp them with the new emperor's face on it they can just stamp it with a new value that's yeah. good
0: for it so you could take over the past two years you could take like a twenty dollar bill and stamp it with five yeah because that's about as far as it's going to get you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, inflation. That's what they were doing. Um, and so
1: anyway, but it's, it's kind of cool because you can look at these coins and you can, because they don't melt them down every time, you can follow the history of these coins. And by extension, follow the history of this legion um, from Judea to modern day Georgia um, in the war against Parthia, the Parthian Empire oh, under Trajan. Which at that point in time, Trajan's conquests, that was the, lo- the largest extent of the Roman Empire, was under Trajan. And so the 10th pretensis would have been part of that um, campaign. Because then immediately after Trajan is Hadrian, and then he withdraws. What was the through. legion that got lost? Was that the 9th? The Hispania? Yeah, the 9th legion, Hispania. The lost, they team. get lost in uh, Britannia. Yeah, I believe so. And there's, there's some, ev- yeah, there, and there's like evidence that it might have shown up in a couple other places, but nobody really knows for sure what happened to it. If it was utterly destroyed, um, <laughs> if there's just records of it that were lost and we just don't know what happened. But yeah, then I think it's the ninth, the ninth legion of Hispania, which was the legion that I believe fought Boudica during her rebellion. I think that was the ninth as well. Hmm. So they were up there. All right. So that's it for old news. Let's get into our topic tonight. The main topic, the crapper or the history of the John. So I don't know why it just got a bug in my head that I wanted to talk about the history of the toilet. Cause I, thought it was fascinating and that's that's how we got where we are so those of you that are hanging tight this is what we're going to get into so history of the
0: toilet in humanity because hmm? i mean bathrooms are what drive up home prices really it They're is what drive women to purchase homes yeah it's probably the number one thing besides the kitchen that when you look at a home you're like what, this what is, is the, it. What, if you're going to remodel what are the two things you spend money on bathrooms and kitchens that's that's what you got to yep. do. So yeah, it's where the most most of the hardware is, right? Yeah. Most of the plumbing, <laughs> exactly, electric. So anyway, I just I thought this was interesting because
1: <laughs> I don't know where I was thinking about it. Like, oh, was was the crapper named after John Crapper, or like was he the guy that invented the first modern toilet? And then I went down this rabbit hole. So from what I could find. The first courtesy flushes. So the first flushing toilets date back to around 2500 to 3000 BCE. Um, In 2500 BCE, India in the Indus Valley, uh, they were way ahead of the times when it came to planning the construction of houses. They were the only ones that would have a separate room dedicated for defecation.
0: But that's the defecation. defecation We haven't come up with a better name yet. And I believe they actually had some sort of primitive plumbing
1: that they could like wash. So it wasn't like you could hit a lever like we have today, but they had pipes that would take it out to like the river and then flush it out. So India, first flushing toilets. Scotland, however, on Orkney, says there's evidence of stone huts equipped with drains built into the village walls dating back to 3000 B.C. Um, says their sewage system was basic. Waste is flushed into a drain with pots of water, but then the basic principle, that's how it works today. You know, water goes down the pipe, and the pipe takes it out of the house. Uh, in ancient Greece, 1700 BCE, the Palace of Nassos, conduits were built into the wall of a bathroom, which made it possible to flush waste with water that was held in cisterns, so your first tanks for toilets. A hole in the floor hmm. allowed waste to go into a drain that led to the nearby river, which Makes you not want to go
0: into a river, um, most likely. So I, I have a comment here. Can we talk about the Cold War next? It's toilets. It's toilets we'll right always now. Talk about the Cold War. The Cold War will be there when we get done yeah. flushing. We'll finish
1: this, and we'll hit the Cold War this. next.
0: I like it. It's because you started talking
1: about <laughs> Oppenheimer. That's why. Um, oh, And we have I public guess. In bathrooms, so we get to Rome. Oi. <laughs> All right. Uh, by 315 AD in Rome, um, had 140, they had a one building that had 144 public toilets. So they'd all just go in the same room together, look at each other in the eyes. They're pooping. And the Romans treated it as a social event. they chat, meet with friends, you know, catch up on gossip. And then they would take a stick with a oh. sponge attached to it, dip it in vinegar, Oh. Wipe, rinse, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rinse it off and then hand it to the next guy. That's how they that's how they cleaned up. So there you go. Ugh. I know. Getting hold of Get the wrong end, of, end, of, the end of the stick. That's where some say that's <laughs> the, where the idea that you got grabbed the wrong end oh. of the stick there. Oh, could you imagine if it was dark and you
0: oh yeah, ew. that would be ew. So so this isn't different today. I mean we sit here and text each other while we're I know.
1: And I mean who hasn't You keep had looking a, over. Is your wife judging you? Who hasn't had a public bathroom conversation? It happens. It's fine. But so Is friend, your wife judging you from off-screen? What? Is your wife judging you from off-camera? No. I'm just I have my TikTok up here so I can see if there's comments. That's why I keep looking off. Oh, okay no okay okay um, you I keep, mean, keep looking she's, over and I, my wife's I always wonder. judging me but she, she knows that she married um <laughs> so anyway she, but what were you talking um public toilets yeah just chatting with each other just chatting. we're just chatting which is what you do doing about i i will not call somebody though but oh no i hate that you uh, can like, tell could, you can tell when somebody's in the bathroom because the echo on the phone oh yeah you know you know and the flush and the grunt wait just wait it's not that important um
0: but anyway it's, that's always the ring 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 you get a text back i'll call you right back yeah you know what that is yep 98 percent of the time mm-hmm. you just you just gotta work in out. the defecation room yeah
1: so but i mean i get that as gross as it is a stick with a sponge and vinegar they didn't have, I mean, paper was expensive back then. They weren't going to be wasting paper on wiping. So, uh, all right. So potty time. Now we're moving to medieval England. Uh, they used potty. be
0: parchment, like
1: one ply parchment. Yeah, it cost a year's salary. <laughs> um, medieval England people used potties, which were simply pots that they would throw the contents out the door or out the window <laughs> onto the street. So that's where the word potty comes from, is these pots that you would go to the bathroom in and then just. Toss the, the waste out the window, which I thought was fascinating. Because um, I thought, I just thought potty was a kid word. I thought that was just a word baby said. I'd like, but I guess there's a real method behind the madness. Um, and then a huge public garter robe, a protruding room with an opening for waste, Usually, like on castles, like there'd just be that room with the hole yeah. on the bottom and it would just fall down that that was what a garter was um but they had public ones they had one that like had it was over a bridge over the river thames which totally poisoned the river in the city of london
0: <laughs> it's terrible it's just
1: <laughs> i mean we tried but we really-
0: uh, why is everyone getting horribly I, sick one mile downstream of
1: the city i have no idea could it be because you're all pooping in the same river that you wash and get water from no couldn't be that <laughs> um all right, so now the John. why do we call it the John? Well, it's Sir John Harrington, the godson of Elizabeth I, who invented a water closet with a raised cistern above it and a small downpipe through which the water ran to flush the waste in 1592. So Thomas Crapper did not invent the first modern toilet. It was John Harrington. Um, however, yeah, he, he actually built one for his godmother Elizabeth, but nobody really did anything with it for 200 years. After he invented the first modern toilet, and it wasn't until Alexander Cummings, a watchmaker, developed the S-shaped pipe that goes under the toilet to prevent the air that bad yeah. air to come back up. That was improved upon by Thomas Crapper, who was born in eighteen thirty-six in Yorkshire, England. He invented the U because can- the bad air makes you sick. The bad air makes you sick, right?
0: Miasma, like, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what they called it. So Thomas Crapper invented the U joint. Um, he also invented the ball cock, which is a fantastic name, which is literally that floating ball in the tank of the toilet. Um, he invented that. So he added some improvements huh. to the toilet, but John Harrington's the guy that invented the first toilet. But the reason we call it the crapper is because branding, he would put T crapper on the cisterns of all of his toilets Perfect. and they became like known as a really high quality bathroom. Hmm or high-quality toilet, and so everybody just started calling it the crapper instead of a a toilet or water closet. So that's where it came from. Fascinating. I know. It is fascinating. All right, so names. You have the crapper, Thomas Crapper, the John from John Harrington. Jake's, which is a little hurtful, but sometimes it's called Jake's, which is a name for... Jake's house. Which is a name for yokels (laughs) or hicks. In like 16th century Eng- England. So if they like saw Hicks in England in the 16th century, they'd call him Jakes or Jacks. So they would say go to the Jake's house would be like the Hicks house is where you'd go to the bathroom. So that'd be more like a latrine or an outhouse type situation, not a built in water closet. So hmm. uh, TP time. So obviously we talked about the Romans using a sponge on a stick. The Greeks used broken shards of pottery to wipe
0: uh, that sounds like a <laughs>
1: terrible idea I know. uh the chinese originally used a wooden spatula with a cloth so not too different from the romans uh the
0: ming kind of i don't sta- like that it's a wooden spatula because that sounds like they grabbed it out of the yeah, kitchen you're gonna go make a stew with it later yeah it's not <laughs> great
1: um The the Hongwu or the Ming dynasty was the first to manufacture toilet paper in the 14th century, but it was only used for the royal household. Um, In Europe, in the Middle Ages, most people used a rag to wipe. Uh, And toilet paper was first mentioned in the 16th century in Europe. However, by the 17th century, the bidet was invented, which used water as a means to clean. it was also used as a means as a contraceptive. Shocker, it didn't work too well. But interesting, <laughs> weird. Just spraying water doesn't work. Um, but in
0: 1928, John Kellogg, DJ. like, did, did did men use it and be like, it didn't work? <laughs> I sprayed myself with, with water.
1: Why is my wife pregnant? I don't know, man. <laughs> oh man wow. that's awesome uh, John Kellogg the cereal guy in America from 1928 oh, applied for gosh. a patent for it to use the bidet as a douche to really clean things okay. out.
0: I'm only eating post cereal from yeah, now on just, just
1: Kellogg was kind of a weird guy he had some other weird stuff that he did up there in Michigan I think he had like a sanitarium he was he was an oddball um to put those those wandering lunatics in yeah, those wandering lunatics from last week with their bent knees. Um and in the nineteen eighties, Japan took the bidet and brought it to the 21st century uh with the electronic bidet and all its fancy settings and
0: all sorts of great stuff. So, so Japan, there's so kids, much of this made it better that we look back on and we're like the Romans with a rag on a stick. Yeah. How absolutely barbaric, but most Americans are just wiping with paper with poorly plied toilet paper. So, mm-hmm. well, um, I'm we're, yeah. the bidet is the most natural way to clean this, mm-hmm. but here's the thing like,
1: you know, toilet technology hasn't really improved since at least the 16th century when they got the first like actual toilet with a cistern that you could flush washed up like it's all stayed basically the same and toilet paper was invented in the 14th century the bidet was invented in the seventh like we've had three centuries and still the best we can do is paper or water like we don't have like sonic showers or anything else it's just and maybe it's a maybe it's a situation if it ain't broke don't fix it but it's pretty wild that we're like no this works fine we're we're good with this we don't need to we don't need to go any farther in technology for this right now
0: but i think there was a time when i first saw a bidet for the first time <clears throat> it may have been when i was in japan and i saw it and i was like I'm afraid of this toilet. There's too many buttons on this toilet. I was afraid of hitting the wrong one. I was curious. Yeah. But I was too afraid. And I really deprived myself (laughs) of a full cleanse. Yeah. Um, What's funny, though, is the Japanese, I think Japanese women still use more toilet paper than anyone else in the world an interesting stat because you'd think with japan having the bidet they would
1: they'd use considerably less Yeah, but i guess not whatever i i would think americans in general would use more but just because we like to use more of everything hey we're coming along hey, we we're are. coming along all right so i got one last thing and I, we'll get to the cold war yeah, um so there's this article i read <laughs> gen x dad raising a boy in a gen z world that was the title of the article it's from your Tango. or are, are we not going to hit the toilet talk the section toilet? okay we'll do the yes okay toilet talk favorite thing to do in the toilet besides poop or on the toilet plate. text you text me yeah that's <laughs> it's texting before phones it was reading <laughs> he was reading the newspaper my dad would always have the newspaper in the bathroom so that he could read so before cell phones i was a yeah. child who was reading the Comic section I, of the
0: movie. I'll take a book in once a,
1: once in a while. Yep. Uh favorite invention that you use on the toilet that is not toilet related in for me, cell phone. The phone. Yeah. It's the cell phone. Yeah. Uh sit or stand when you go pee. And I'll start. I 70, 80% of the time will sit down when I go pee. I don't care what anyone thinks. It's comfortable. It's relaxing. Interesting. I don't care. So
0: I know most guys stand, but I'm an odd dog. Yeah, to stand, you know, just to keep consistent when there's a urinal around. Yeah,
1: I guess. I mean, I'm able to make the shift if I have to. It's not like I walk into a bathroom with a urinal yeah. and sit on it, but you know, <laughs> I, I can, I can adapt, sir.
0: <laughs> what are you doing?
1: Uh, squatty potty or not? Have you ever used one?
0: Yes, we have one. Not as much of a game changer for me, or I can imagine for Cameron. When you have long legs, it doesn't yeah, change. There, there's a difference, but yeah, for someone who's roughly our height, Jeff, it's not.
1: You know, when Jeff was still at the company and we were still working in the office, he had a squatty potty in the bathrooms and I used it. It was fine, but it wasn't like, wow, this is the greatest poop I've ever had. It was. I don't, Did he
0: have a bidet in there?
1: No, we, we didn't spring for the bidet at that point. Uh, what's your minimum ply toilet paper? I'm going to.
0: No, I, I don't, I don't honestly really know, Okay, but it's not, it's not the Costco brand. Cause that's too rough, I guess. I don't know. I don't pick up the toilet paper. Hey, I'm in not doing no judgment
1: here, man. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, when you get, you said you've never done this. So maybe this is just a question for me, but praying to the porcelain God. So
0: you get hung over, you got to throw up. Do you do seat up or seat? Oh up? no, I just, I haven't from getting drunk. Okay. I've vomited plenty.
1: Yeah, okay. So do you do the seat
0: up or seat down? Seat up. Yeah, I'm a seat up guy. I don't know. I'm not sure why it would matter. But then, you know, the hands, you have to go underneath the bowl. You can't put them on the rim. That's disgusting. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Toilet paper loading over or under?
1: Over. 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 Yep. Over. And weirdest place you've ever had to go to the bathroom.
0: So like you had to go, but there was no bathroom around on I ten on the way back from camp. On the I ten? And you had to back the you had to back the bus your bus up oh, to that rest area. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, forgot I had to back into
1: the rest area because I overshot
0: it. <laughs> I think I've I mean, I don't have a story for me. Yeah. I have a story for like my son. That works. Like we're ten minutes from home. He's like, I gotta go. And I'm yeah. like, dude, he's like, no, I got to go now. I'm like, okay. Well, we'll just pull over, you know, on a country road. And he gets out. I'm like, what are you doing out there? He's like, I'm going. I'm like, oh, you had, that's number two, son. Mm-hmm. I have no paper for you. I had a uh, similar situation. Uh, my wife was
1: in a Walmart and I was waiting in the car with my daughter and son. And my son's like, I got to go to the bathroom now. Like, okay. And so we, Got out of the car and same thing. I thought he had to go pee. Nope. He dropped trial right in the parking lot. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's awesome.
0: Uh oh. Second year. Well, on our way back from Southern California, we're in the mountains. Yeah. And one of my younger son had to go, and traffic was like at a stop on the five. So we pulled off onto this road, went under the underpass or under the overpass, pulled off, took him out of the car. He's like, "No, I don't actually have to go. Um, I'll hold it." it We're still like an hour from home, but we skipped probably an hour of traffic by taking a side road. There you so know. it all worked out. That's a plus. All right, yeah, but back on.
1: All right. So final thing before we get to the Cold War, Uh, Gen X dad raising a boy in a Gen Z world. So this is an article from Your Tango, but it's on other outlets. Uh, So this guy, Derek, is Gen Z or Gen X dad, says, all right, man, let's go. And tells his son, who's like nine, all these jugs to carry. You want to tell him why you got to carry these jugs? And then he fills in the answer because the boy doesn't want to answer. He goes, he hit his mom today. And he goes, so spanking is out of the question because you libtards made it so we can't spank our <laughs> children no more. And it's like it blew it blew me away one because I, I am one of those libtards, I guess. But like if you keep reading the article and if you watch the video attached, it was like he's super supportive of his son. He's like, you got this, buddy. And this is why we got to do this. And I love you. And just so you know, you're not going to hit your mom. And like he's doing all these great parenting things. But he's like also oh, really put out that because of the liberals, he can't spank his kid anymore. It's, it's just like, I don't know. It just kind of made me laugh. And I don't know if he was trolling or if he was genuine or not, like he was just doing it to be kind of silly. But like, I mean, the punishment was real, making his kid carry these water jugs across the airport. Oh, certainly. But like, he also just seems like a really good dad. It's like, I don't think you needed to hit your kid because I think you did a good job in this lesson without having to spank your kid. And so it would just kind of spark this question, because I don't know about you, but when I grew up, my dad never hit me. And my dad was a big, scary guy, super masculine, macho guy, but he never hit me. Um, He didn't really have to because he was scary enough without it. And that's something, although I'm not perfect, I've tried to make a point of not spanking my kids because I just don't want to set that kind of precedent um and so i don't know what your thoughts are on spanking and i'm not saying if other people don't do or don't spank their kids that's not my business i don't really care um like i'm not saying you should or shouldn't i'm just saying for me personally i don't want to spank my kids um because my dad did and i want to be a good example in that regards so I, I, in that, this article kind of sparked that conversation because he's, he's like saying, well, we can't spank our kids. It's like, yeah, but look how good you're doing not spanking your kid. And I don't know. It just kind of sparked that thought to me. I don't know if you have any thoughts of your own or.
0: Yeah, it, it's tricky because. <clears throat> you know, for a long time, that was the standard. Yeah. Right. And some sort yeah, of the spot, right, on the spot the bottom. Child, or, right. Right. But, um, the rod doesn't have to be a physical rod. Sure. I agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, ours, ours are pretty, our disciplinary measures tend to be, um, yeah, we're, we're taking a time out. We're stepping away from this situation. Um, and and then we come back to it and it's usually a conversation of some sort. Never had my kids do something like this. I might. Yeah. You know, Cause it might work.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm like, I, in lieu of my dad spanking me, he had some very creative yeah. alternative punishments that were very effective. Um, you know, like I had to clean the entire basement once because I got in deep trouble, um, and things like that. And, uh, so it's not that there weren't consequences. I'm not saying that. But like, you know, my dad had some other issues with when he was a kid, he was hit a lot. And so I think for him, he didn't want to pass that trauma on to me. And conversely, I don't want to give that to my kids. And not that I've never spanked them. I have a couple of times and and I regretted it. Um, but uh in general, I don't want to I don't want that to be my legacy, so to speak. So it's just you know, it's interesting because this guy's...
0: Gen I'm X. not sure anyone feels good after giving a spanking or a SWAT to the bottom sure. or anything like that. I would hope not. But, you know.
1: Yeah. You, you never know. It's just... And like I said, this guy is Gen X, so he's a little bit older than us. And, you know, he has a different worldview, but it's also like... Again, and I'm not sure if he's trolling with the way he's doing this, but it's like
0: your method. What's well, also is super effective. At what age at what age does spanking become like ineffective?
1: That's a good point because I remember very clearly around 7 my mom spanked me. She would spank me when I was a kid, and I remember at one point she spanked me and I laughed because it didn't hurt anymore. And I just laughed, <laughs> and oh. she was pissed, and so then she got real creative with her discipline techniques, and I would say those were far more effective than this. Like you are gonna read all of the songs,
0: yeah.
1: Like, <laughs> like she one time I this was like six or seven. I stole a candy bar from the grocery store, and Jake. my grandma found out, and my grandma told my mom, and my mom put it up on the mantle.
0: Why is grandma being a snitch? Yeah, I know grandma. Come on,
1: Grams. I thought we were tight. And my mom put it up on the mantle for a week and maybe look at it for a week. And then we Oh. And then we had to go back wow. and return it and I had to apologize to the store manager. Like, dang. Spanking was not going to teach me that lesson. She she got psychological on me and it was effective so like when you think about it that way it's like yeah I mean spanking works for a time and it has a purpose but I don't know if it has the lasting effect that a really well thought out devious punishment does so and I don't know maybe I've got my own trauma from that but it's um <laughs> you know all that to say, it was an interesting article So, uh, all right. And Sean, if you are still here, I don't know if you are, but let's talk about the Cold War, a little bonus topic. So, Cold War, was it really that cold? Not really. Um, The reason it's called the Cold War, for those of you that don't know, is because it was a war between the United States and the Soviet Union, primarily. But during that time from... 1945 until 91 or 2, so basically 50 years or so, the United States and the Soviet Union never directly were at war with each other. They were in proxy wars. And so... Proxy wars are the best wars, by the way. Oh, yeah. Zero negative consequences for a good proxy war. Um, And so... You know the the fear was if the United States and the Soviet Union went to war in a hot war, it potentially could lead to the end of life, as we know it, um, because of obviously nuclear um, technology that had been developed, but also just this sheer massive industrial scale of a war between those two countries. So instead, the United States adopted this policy of containment against the Soviet Union and the domino theory. Basically, where if we let, you know, one country fall to communism, that means the next country is going to fall and so on and so forth until it would be a communist hegemon across the entire world. And so the United States engaged in these proxy wars with the Soviet Union, namely Korea, the Korean Peninsula, Vietnam, Um, but then Vietnam spilled over into Laos and Cambodia, Um, the United States, the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan was a kind of covert proxy war. Um, obviously, the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 60s was, again, another effect of the Cold War um, because it allowed the Soviet Union to place nuclear missiles within 80 miles of the United States' shores. And at that point, prior to that, the United States had the advantage because they had all these nuclear bombs stationed in Western and Central Europe, pointing straight at the Soviet Union. And so the the, the Cold War... Wasn't any singular event. It was just facets all across the world for five decades, um, until the Soviet Union fell, basically, and and that's kind of in generally, you know, what it was.
0: You want to know an interesting story about it? I've got an interesting story okay. from the Cold War. Get us. Um, hold on a second, because. I'm gonna bring a book down. So I'm reading this book right now, Vietnam Mm -hmm. by Max Hastings. And I got to this point where he's talking about Operation Rolling Thunder. Mm. So Vietnam War is one of these proxy wars. Operation Rolling Thunder was our bombing campaign over all these different parts of Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and the roads going in there. Mm -hmm. If you were in the Navy during Vietnam still we thank you for your service but you are nowhere near in the same danger as a marine or a soldier in vietnam because vietnam had no navy right mm-hmm. the north vietnamese weren't coming out to your ships of the navy so but it didn't mean there was no danger right because you had you had airplanes coming in sometimes they would crash land there was hazards but it wasn't the same yeah, the USS Forrestal, and I think this was in 1967, mm-hmm. was an aircraft carrier, and it had just received a delivery of munitions, you know, to put on aircraft to drop these bombs. <clears throat> these music- uh munitions had come from the Philippines, but they weren't these new type of bomb where the explosive was this very stable explosive, they were actually 15-year-old munitions that had been sitting on the tarmac in the Philippines for 15 years in the heat and humidity, and they were older munitions. So these these bombs, the explosives, were some of the chemicals in them were actually leaking out of the bombs. Hmm. And the forestall tried to send them back. They couldn't. They ended up having these and they're like, all right, we're going to load them up and send them off anyways. But on July 29th, 1967, a faulty wiring in one of the F 4 Phantoms uh, caused it to launch a Sidewinder while on deck. And it launched this Sidewinder into one of those munitions, I believe, or into a tank. But because those munitions were less stable, they started exploding mm-hmm. and this incident killed 134 servicemen Jeez. on board the USS Forrestal. And, and it, you know, they had to change uh, the way they dealt with fires because they had for a while adopted this Japanese style of dealing with fires where everyone was trained in fire suppression Mm-hmm. And then they went away from that and they started specializing. So they had special crews for fires. Well, that means other people weren't sure what to do. Um, after that, they, they changed it again and said, yeah, we're going to make sure everyone's trained for this. But um, yeah, 134 dead on board this aircraft carrier that's hundreds of miles from the actual area of operation. So yeah. Well, and that would be in the Gulf of Tonkin, right? So,
1: Yeah. 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 Um, You know, another interesting thing about Vietnam in in terms of the Cold War, because that was probably, you know, that and Korea were the two main theaters that we think of, at least from America's perspective in the Cold War. But with Vietnam, you know, in 1945, during World War II, the Japanese had conquered what was then known as Indochina, but Vietnam. And Ho Chi Minh was part of a resistance group during that point in time, throwing out the Japanese. But when the Japanese were gone, the French tried to resume their colony um, in Indochina, Vietnam, and Ho Chi Minh, along with other revolutionaries, declared you know, independence from France. Well, France tried to reassert their authority. And you know what's interesting about that is when Ho Chi Minh declared their independence, he cited basically America's declaration of independence as, you know, saying, look, we deserve self-determination. We deserve to be free. Now he was always a communist. He had been a communist I think since the 19 teens, but he he saw yeah. this idea of American republicanism and democracy as something that should be determined for them and not to just be uh, another colony of a European power. And so there's this kind of weird brief window where possibly Ho Chi Minh, when he declared his independence, he made these kind of overtures to the United States saying, support us. But France was having none of it. And they wanted to reassert their colonial empire and um, engaged in a terribly fought war against the Vietnamese and, and were getting beaten badly. And then they started asking the United <laughs> States for help. Um, and then I think it was in 1950 or 53 when France finally pulled out of Vietnam. Um, but then the United States was just kind of there um,
0: trying to support yeah. the pro-democracy, pro-capitalist oh. regime. Ho Chi Minh cited Saigon. both the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the, uh, the rights of man and, sit- and the citizen mm-hmm. from the French Revolution. Yeah. In their Declaration of Independence, they cited both of those.
1: Yeah, and so it's just kind of, I don't know, it's its fascinating to see like, you know, this interesting thing because there's this brief moment where the United States was like, maybe we'll support this guy, even though he's a communist. But then by 1950, that had all shifted because we couldn't support any communist, even if they were favorable towards America um, because they might fall under the, the guise of the specter of the USSR. But by pushing Ho Chi Minh away, yeah. we pushed him into the arms of the USSR. And so it was kind of a, I don't know it was a catch-22 or ironic, but it was very interesting like, the, uh, you know, the containment policy, especially in the moment, made sense to the United States. Look, like if we can contain this to these countries, and keep it out of these countries then we're doing okay but i think there was a lot of countries vietnam being one um iran being another um in the 60s but um that's for a slightly different reason Uh, but this idea of containment worked only insofar as that you know kept most of europe and you know like japan south korea australia free from soviet influence but it also pushed a lot of other countries into that Soviet uh, sphere of influence. So I don't mean to, you know, mon- Monday morning quarterback, you know, diplomatic decisions made 70, 80 years ago. But it it is an interesting way to look at things, with, with at least in regards to how Vietnam could have been different had we made a di- few different decisions. Yeah, because it was certainly America's most difficult war. I, I I know people like to say the war on terror, but, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the cost in life and treasure in Vietnam for America far exceeded anything during America's 20 years during the war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. Easily, yeah. easily. So I, I, yeah. it was definitely if there was an opportunity to avoid that war.
0: I, I think it would have been
1: it's in, it's worth exploring why we didn't. Um, because, it you know, it informs our future decisions. Yeah. <sighs> well, well, that's all we got for tonight. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Those of you guys that kind of poked in and and uh listen to us go on and on we appreciate it and uh we'll hit y'all next week but uh thank you so much have a great day in history and uh talk to y'all later